0: Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. In the beginning of February, I decided to start a trend of covering the trees represented on the Celtic Oum tree calendar. I had a lot of fun with the Rowan, so I'm going to keep that going. This month is known as the Ash Moon, and it lasts from February 18th to March 17th, so it just started last week. And I forgot to include these details in the Rowan episode, but each moon, each month, Also has its own Celtic-Irish name, so the Rowan moon is called Lush, and the current ash moon is called Nion, please forgive me on those pronunciations. So, similar to the Rowan, the ash tree holds great importance both in the pre-Christian Celtic faith present on the British Isles as well as the Nordic faith that was common across Scandinavia, and I'll go into some detail about why these views seem to continually tie themselves together. Ash trees also hold significance in North America, both in modern culture as well as tribal traditions. I am going to do my very best to cover this entire genus and properly present what makes the ash one of my favorite trees. Like I said, I'm going to try and cover Ash as an entire tree group here. This wasn't too difficult to do with the Aspen or the Baobab since those just had 6-8 to eight trees in their genera. It's going to be a little more challenging now because this genus is comprised of 65 species. I'm doing this by limiting my discourse to only the 4 or 5 most prominent of the Ash species. Most of the genus is simply forest trees that haven't played too big of roles in culture. But if you know of a species with a great history that I end up not covering, let me know and I can add that to my research roster. Another reason I can cover so many by only talking about a handful is that they all look very, very similar. With many tree genera, there's at least some key differences between species, but when it comes to the ash, those differences are incredibly minor and or seasonally specific. When I worked as a botanist in Wisconsin, we rarely tried to distinguish between white, green, and black ashes because what differences they had was obscured by the fact that these physical features were highly variable, and each species could easily look just like one of the other species. All that being said, what is an ash tree? This ash genus that I've been referring to is called in Latin, Fraxinus, which is an incredible name. If I ever get a dragon, I'm going to name it Fraxinus. What does Fraxinus mean? We don't actually know. Some say it means firewood, others say maybe lightning, some say that it just means ash. The word ash comes from the Old English ash, uh, but spelled A-E-S-C. The Norse would have pronounced it esk. We don't quite know the origins of this word either. Some say wagon wheel, others say maybe axe or spear. Some say that it's just the word for the ash tree. I think I maybe obsess a little too much over etymology, over the origins of these words. Like, not every word has to be derived from an older language. I tried to find an example of something that just means the thing it's named after. Uh, I thought of a random word, my mind just produced jeans, you know, like the pants, thinking, oh, it's just a word that is in reference to denim pants. And it is, but it turns out that the word jeans is derived from the city of Genoa in Italy where that fabric was first woven. Which doesn't help my obsession, it just confirms that everything has a story and I must know it. So, um, the ash. What does it look like? These trees are considered medium, hardwood deciduous trees. Most species growing 60 to 100 feet or 18 to 30 meters tall. These heights will of course vary based on species and environmental conditions. Not every ash is deciduous either. There are some species that are native to tropical latitudes, and the climate in those regions allow it to be evergreen the leaves of an ash are compound and i reference this fact back with the rowan episode because those trees are called mountain ash for having similar leaves again a compound leaf is when a leaf stalk bears several leaflets rather than one main leaf the whole structure of five to nine leaflets is all one leaf one important detail is that the leaves are arranged oppositely on their branches. This means that if you are holding an ash twig, the leaves will sprout in pairs directly opposite each other on the twig. I say this is important because only so many trees and shrubs do this. Most will sprout wherever they please, but without that symmetry. If you're taught tree identification, you'll likely learn some mnemonic device for remembering which species are opposite. It's pretty much just maple, ash, dogwood, horse chestnuts and buckeyes, catalpas, kind of, and honeysuckle, though those last ones are shrubs. The mnemonic devices are things like mad cat, maple ash dogwood, Catalpa, or the mad horse wears a cap, maple ash dogwood, horse chestnut, caprifoliaceae, which is the family for honeysuckles. These are very important to remember because say you're in front of a tree and it has compound leaves and there's no fruit or flowers and you're not experienced enough to ID from just the bark. If the leaves are arranged opposite, it is 100% in ash. Another thing about the ash leaves is that they are almost always the first to fall come autumn. By the time maples have decided that it's chilly enough to start showing some color, the ash is like, is it naked time? I've decided it's naked time! The leaves are also one of those incredibly minor ways to distinguish ash species, at least in America. When a leaf falls off, the spot where the stalk connected to the tree leaves a mark called a leaf scar. White and green ash are two very common trees in the eastern forests, and one identifier is that green leaf scars look like a dot sitting on top of a semicircle, while the white ash leaf scars look like the dot is indenting the semicircle. It's incredibly similar, and those shapes vary with an amount of overlap. It's it's awful. The flowers of the ash are pretty cool, I think. The trees form these clusters of small purple flowers. When the flowers are spent, they shrivel up and turn brown, but they don't fall down, they just hang out on the branch. That's another easy way to tell you're looking at an ash. Even if it's winter and the leaves are gone, if you see these clusters of brown shriveled up bits, that is iconic to the ash. The fruits are what I would describe as teardrop samaras. Think about how maples have those dual-winged helicopter guys that kind of spin their way down. These are called double samaras. So break that in half, so it's just one wing, but instead of a wing shape, it's shaped like a teardrop or a raindrop, and that's what the ash fruit is. One last physical feature is that the twigs and bark tend to be grey, like ash, and the bark has this neat ropey diamond pattern. So as I've mentioned in previous episodes, the ash is not related to the rowan or mountain ash, so it's not in the rose family. Ashes are actually in the olive family, Oleaceae. The main notable tree in that family, other than the ash, is the olive tree, as you may have guessed. Olives have a wonderful history of cultivation, so you can be sure that shows up as a future episode. Other species you might recognize in this family are privet shrubs. These are the shrubs you often see planted as those well-shaped hedgerows. And there's also some really lovely flowers in this family, like lilac, jasmine, and forsythia. Lastly, the main ash species that I am going to be covering the cultural backgrounds of are the European or common ash, Fraxinus excelsior, the white ash, Fraxinus americana, and the black ash, Fraxinus nigra. And I'll mention a couple more here and there as bonuses. Let's start with the European Ash. As I stated, the third month in the Celtic Oum calendar is dedicated to the Ash. Like the rowan, the Ash is said to contain various magical properties and powers. Also like the rowan and most other trees, these powers are most strongly expressed as protection and healing. The healing properties are backed by science though, all parts of the tree contain a glucoside called Fraxin that has been proven to have anti-inflammatory properties. As for the magical healing, it is said that if you craft an ash wand during the ash moon and rub it with your favorite healing oil, that it will be a strong tool for healing magic. The Welsh god Gwydion was said to use an ash wand for his magic. In Ireland, the ash is considered one of the chieftain trees. These are the seven most important tree species to the Irish people. There's another instance here of five guardian trees being planted to protect the Irish people, and three of these five trees were ashes. But in the 7th century, these trees were felled, most likely by arriving Christians who were trying to get rid of pagan things they didn't jive with. The ash is also hugely important in Norse mythology, like the Rowan was. I have two theories about why we continue to see these crossovers and values. One is simply that a thousand years ago, northern Europeans put a lot of value in the natural world, and since these species grew widely across Europe, different cultures independently saw value in the same things. The other has to do with the fact that there was a period of history when Nordic people, mainly Vikings, raided and occupied the British Isles. This could have led to an exchange of ideas and beliefs, and they simply borrowed certain values of the natural world and adapted them to fit their own mythos. In modern day, you can still see the influence of Nordic culture in Britain with the ash. As I mentioned, Celts called it esh, while Nords called it esk. If you look at a map of the British Isles, you can see areas where Celtic culture survived with towns like Ashbourne, Ashcot, or Ashford, and where the Viking occupation likely left some imprint on the culture with towns like Askern, Askrig, and Askham. I'm not sure if that Nordic influence still remains to this day, but that's at least the origins of those differences. But what made the Ash so special to the Norse? At the center of the Norse cosmos is a world tree called Yggdrasil. At the top of the tree is the home of the gods, Asgard. In the middle of the tree is our world, Midgard, and beneath is this imperceptibly deep ocean. And there's other realms and worlds that make up different parts of the tree, often adding up to nine worlds total. This tree, which was the basis for our universe, is most often referred to as an ash tree, as you can imagine, many stories in Norse mythology revolve around this ash tree. It's literally the world. The most notable one directly about it, I think, is about how Odin learned the runes. In that fathomless pool called the Well of Erd lived three women called Norns. They were essentially in control of shaping the fate of everyone living in the world, and they did so by writing runes or archaic letters into the world tree. So one day Odin was sitting up at the top of the tree in Asgard, looking down on the Norns in their rune writing, and he thought to himself, Dang, I wish I knew how to read. Because at this point, written language wasn't a thing, but Odin saw how the Norns shaped the world with writing, and he wanted that power. And in a modern age where misinformation can manipulate millions of people around the world, I think we can all see just how much power exists in the written word. The pen is truly mightier than the sword. Anyway, the understanding of runes was something that was only earned by those who were strong enough to understand the true depth of their power, and Odin thought to himself, this'll be easy, I'll show my strength the best way I know how, self-mutilation. There's a reason he wears an eye patch. So Odin hangs himself from a branch of the world tree, and also pierces himself with a spear. And from there, he just angrily stared down at the runes in the well, like, Look at me, runes! Look at how strong I am! And Odin stayed there for nine days. Other gods tried to help him, but Odin said, No, I want to learn how to read! And after nine days and nine nights, the runes decided this guy wasn't messing around, and they revealed their meaning to him. I know we all hate when Grandpa talks about back in his day, he had to walk three miles up a hill in the snow to get to school and learn how to read. Odin is that guy, times a thousand. Because of the high esteem the Nordic people held for the ash, they were often referred to as Askling, meaning men of the ash. Oftentimes their spear and axe handles were made of ash wood, possibly explaining why the original Celtic word is associated with those weapons. There's other little stories here and there about the ash throughout Europe, even as far south as the Mediterranean. It's said that the ash was a holy tree for the Greek sea god Poseidon, and that ash wood had the powers to keep someone from drowning. Disclaimer, it doesn't, so please don't try it. But let's switch gears and talk about the ash trees in North America. The most common ash tree in North America is the white ash. It's not the most widespread though, that title belongs to the green ash. The green ash stretches from the east coast all the way west to Montana, while the white ash range stops on the edge of the plains around the Missouri River. But the white ash is a more common forest tree than the green. White ash is one of the most important lumber species in the United States. It's terrific wood. It has a great strength to weight ratio, a nice straight grain, and is relatively flexible. There is a reason why the Vikings used ash wood for their weapon handles. And in America, just about everything with a handle is made from ash. Tools, oars, and various sports sticks. The famous Louisville Slugger baseball bats are exclusively made from white ash. It is the perfect wood that's light enough to swing hard, strong enough to give real power to your hit, and flexible enough to not break easily. Everything in the average home is commonly made from ash as well. I'm talking furniture, doors, cabinets, flooring and it makes a terrific ornamental tree as well. They are very common to find as shade trees in towns and cities. The other noteworthy American species I want to talk about is the black ash. This tree is limited to the Northeast, the Great Lakes states and provinces, as well as New England. The black ash tends to grow in more lowland areas, wetter sites like swamps and other wetlands. Because of this, it's not as feasible for harvest as a wood product but its real value comes from the impact this tree has had on native tribal culture. Several different tribes relied upon the black ash for the highly important practice of basket weaving. This species was particularly good for such an art form because there is this porous zone between the sapwood and the heartwood that allows these sections of the tree to be split easily and formed into weaving strands. The tree also plays an important role in numerous legends, The Wabanaki tribe in northeast United States believe that the first people were born from the black ash tree. There are several ash trees that grow across North America, and there tend to be stories about them wherever they are found. There is one story by the Chittimacha people of Louisiana about the labors of Rabbit. In this story, Rabbit went to God asking him for more power. God told Rabbit he had enough power already, and gave him a series of tasks to prove it to him. There's a few things that he must do first, and using his cleverness and quickness seems to always come out on top. The last trial that Rabbit was given was that he had to go and get Rattlesnake and bring him to God, a dangerous task because Rattlesnake is very venomous and doesn't like to be picked up. So Rabbit grabbed an ash stick and laid it down next to Rattlesnake. Rattlesnake was like, um, what are you doing? And Rabbit was like, oh, I just wanted to measure you along this stick here. And Rattlesnake said, "Okay," And then Rabbit started tying Rattlesnake to the stick. And Rattlesnake said, Okay, dude, this is getting weird, and I don't like it. But Rabbit told him, No, 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 no. don't worry, don't worry. It's just that you're so squirmy and crooked that I need to tie you to the stick and lay you out to get an accurate measurement. And Rattlesnake said, Okay, fine. And when he was all tied up, Rabbit just picked him up and carried him to God. And God said, yeah, see, you have more power than you need already, dude. There's a few other stories about rabbit that are just so funny, but they have nothing to do with trees. But there's a reason why the stick rabbit used was an ash stick. It was believed ash wood was poisonous to snakes, not just to tribes in America, but also in Ireland. Here's the thing, it's not. There's this explanation that claims if you pierce a snake with ash wood, the snake will become paralyzed. And I honestly think what happened was that some people were trying to kill snakes, and one guy took an ash stick and stabbed the snake, probably killing it, and said, I found its weakness! It's this specific species of wood! And right now I need to go into park ranger mode and tell you all that the best way to deal with a snake is to leave it alone. One sad thing about the ash in North America is that it is threatened by a beetle known as the Emerald Ash Borer. The Emerald Ash Borer is honestly a beautiful beetle, from northern Asia and eastern Russia that is horrifically invasive and decimates native ash forests. It was first identified in Michigan around 20 years ago and has since spread throughout much of eastern Canada and the United States. If left unchecked, this beetle has the potential to wipe out 9 billion ash trees. And after we lost 4 billion American chestnut trees, foresters do not want to let something like that happen again. There is a terrific website, emeraldashborer.info where you can look at where the beetle has been reported, how you can identify its presence, and where you can report sightings. It has already killed hundreds of millions of ash trees, but we are trying so hard to curb the spread as best we can. Now, I don't want to turn this into another bummer episode, so we are going to head back to Europe for one more nice story. There is a species of ash native to southern Europe called Fraxinus ornus, the manna ash. Manna is in reference to that mythological nectar of the gods. It gets this name because it secretes this sweet resin that is heavily used as a sweetener on the Italian island of Sicily. Using manna is something that is a part of slow food. Slow food is a movement that started in Italy and revolves around food being local, seasonal, and traditional. In the western world, access to food is fairly on demand. Any food. It doesn't matter anymore if raspberries ripen in June and it's February. I can go to a grocery store and get raspberries right now. And I recognize the privilege I have to be able to do that. Slow food is about taking a step back and making a deeper connection with what we are eating. Consuming things that have historically grown nearby at a time of year when it's actually available and preparing it in ways that are traditional for us as people in that region. This is a movement that I really love. It is a method of reconnecting with the natural world, of overcoming our bad habit of trying to conquer a landscape rather than care for it. Connecting people with the land is the whole point of this podcast, it's why I tell the stories I do. And ash is the perfect tree to talk about connections. Whether it's how Sicilians connect with their food, how the Wabanaki connect with their heritage, or how the Norse connect literally the whole world. We connect with the ash. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their stuff on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Bandcamp, wherever good music exists, they are there. My cover art is by Brittany Burnett. Find her incredible photography on Instagram at BoomerangBrit. Find me on Twitter at MyFavoriteTrees and get updates on future episodes and extra goodies. If you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug.